Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. Or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. My choice to participate in that discussion and try to sort of intellectually defend myself as opposed to angrily defend myself certainly changed the trajectory of my life in that I then started writing for Speak Up and had a whole new posse of friends that are still my friends today. I ended up meeting the editor-in-chief of Print Magazine en route to a Speak Up event for the AIGA. That changed my life. Joyce Ryder Kay, then I started working for Print Magazine. That experience introduced me to Stephen Heller. He helped me with my first book deal. He he invited me to co-found the Masters in Branding program that we're sitting in right now doing this podcast. So I would say that a whole arc of my life wouldn't have been possible without that one serendipitous situation. One of the most influential voices in design, she's led the redesign of over 200 global brands, is co-founder of the Masters in Branding program at New York's School of Visual Arts, an author of six books and host of one of the most popular and longest running podcasts, Design Matters, is this week's guest, Debbie Millman. As a guest on countless podcasts, we avoid going over much of what you may have already heard in other interviews. Instead, we dive deep into who Debbie is. We covered the impact of Debbie's upbringing, her parents' divorce age eight, the fear of her father, the abuse she suffered from her brutally violent stepfather. We discuss how she sought refuge in her imagination, the visualization of her future life in a drawing she did as a child, and why Manhattan became her non-negotiable. Debbie recounts with impact the terror of the 9-11 attacks, the lifelong challenge to prove her self-worth, the reliance that came from failure and rejection, and the power of her hope and ambition. We explore her perspective on curiosity and creativity, her youthful creative pursuits, the belief-inspiring effect of a professor at university, and the serendipitous and positive impact that a negative post on the Speak Up blog ultimately had in defining the arc of her life going forward. And we discuss so much more. I hope you enjoy this emotive exploration into the life design of Debbie Millman. Debbie. Hi. Thank, hi, Debbie. Thank you very much for being on the Impossible Network. Um, My pleasure. I really appreciate it and I appreciate your time. And it's, it's wonderful. I've been really looking forward to this interview. As we say to all our guests, we like to explore their childhood and understand more about your upbringing and the impact of your life and your life, particularly in design, branding and podcasting. Maybe actually that's something I'm going to come and ask you. Uh, you interviewed Chantelle Martin, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, we interviewed Chantelle the other week. She's and, wonderful. And yeah, it just made me think. I was walking over here about the question of you are you and who are you. We'll maybe come and talk about that a little bit further into the interview. Okay. All right. So you were born, I believe, in New York, in Brooklyn, to a pharmacist uh, entrepreneurial father and a seamstress mother. Um, well done. There you go. Yeah. And you moved through the boroughs as you grew up. And then your parents separated when you were eight, nine years eight old. Eight, nine years, eight, nine years, nine old. years yes. old. Yeah. Yes. There's a, a personal relevance to me, given that I separated and uh, uh, left Edinburgh to go to London and left my daughter behind, aged eight. So that must have impacted a lot on your emotional development. Yeah. I mean, I think it would anybody. I don't. Mm. I don't know that that's something that is specific to me. I think anybody's parents separating when you're still in those formative years yeah. is is something that affects you. Can you sort of look back and when you 
when you chart your life and you consider your, your sense of self-belief and your identity at that age, is there anything that you can expand upon and, and, and unpack around that sort of period of your life that had a, had a significant impact? Well, it was the late 60s, early 70s when this was happening. And so divorce was not a common thing. I remember asking my mother after hearing my parents fight and being very scared at what that meant. I remember asking her one night as she was tucking me into bed, are you and daddy getting divorced? And she said, oh, no, no, it takes a really long time for something like that to happen. And then, in fact, they did get divorced shortly thereafter. But at the time, there was a lot of stigma to it. And I remember my some of my so-called friends um, teasing me because my parents were getting divorced and and in fact one even suggesting it was because I was a bad daughter <laughs> but that, that had nothing to do with it but I remember at the time actually being relieved because my father really scared me and the fact that he would no longer be around full-time to scare me actually was something that made me feel somewhat calmer but it was super complicated and there were a lot of a lot of a lot of emotions and lots and lots of layers because I remember also there was an issue with his payment of child support and we all had to go to court or she my mother had to go to court and she decided she made the very wise decision of bringing her children with her to to court after my parents got divorced I didn't see my father for five years and so the idea that I was then going to see him Despite the fact that I had initially been relieved, um, I was oh, so really you went from age eight to around age thirteen without actually seeing him or having any yes. sort of custodial yes meetings. It was as I said, it was super complicated. Uh, My mother got remarried very quickly after they got divorced, not because she was seeing anybody at the time, but because she couldn't be alone. Um, my dad, in fact was seeing someone at the end of their marriage, which is why they split up. Mm -hmm. He didn't get married again for many, many years and ended up marrying somebody completely different. Um, my stepfather was a brutal, violent person who was adamant that my father was a bad person and that we shouldn't see him, my brother and I. And so in the few times between their getting divorced and her getting remarried that I did see my dad, he would beat my brother and I after we would come back. And so that ended up making it impossible for, for me to see him because I, I couldn't get beaten anymore. I didn't want to get beaten anymore. My brother actually, he, he endured it a little bit longer than I did, but I, I said, I, okay, I'm not going to see him because I couldn't deal with the with and, the brutalization. Your mother was aware of this. Yeah, mm. yeah, she was. So what what was the what was driving him to be so violent? Probably his upbringing. His, his upbringing. I mean, that was Breaking just that the tip cycle. of the iceberg yeah. with what he did to us. He tortured us. I mean, I I have said publicly that my upbringing was was like an episode of Criminal Minds or Law and Order SVU. I mean, it was brutal, and. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. We, Period. We were, yeah, we were interviewing uh, Jose Freire, uh, the gallerist, yes. a few weeks ago, and he was telling us a story about his the, the, the brutality of the upbringing he had with the Catholic Church and his father, yeah. and how he took solace in coming to New York, age 13, to go to cinemas in 1973, because that was a safe place. Right. Oh, yeah, that and makes sense. It's just, yeah, just incredible. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't have any safe place, really. Mm -hmm. I, my safe place was my imagination. 
Yeah, <laughs> I was about to talk to you about your creativity and curiosity and your imagination because obviously having listened to a number of interviews um, with you, there's that famous story where you, you drew at aged eight yeah. a depiction of your future self. Isn't that amazing? It is incredible, um, particularly at that age um, to have done it with such sort of accuracy. But I'm just wondering when clearly you were a creative and curious child and doing that, what stimulated you to actually sort of draw that drawing at that particular time? When you flash forward to when you did your Milton Glaser exercise in life design in the class, it's almost like a mini version of that. Back it when is you were actually eight, eight years old. It is. I have no memory of doing the drawing. I know that I did it. I signed it. It's definitely my childhood style of drawing. Um, I found it quite by accident. It wasn't something that I kept and was holding preciously uh, as a memento of, of my childhood. I found it as an adult. So seeing it, and for those that are listening that might not be aware of what it looks like, it's a drawing that I did about eight or so years old. Um, I think it was actually before my parents got divorced. I had I was born in Brooklyn, lived in Queens and Staten Island. As you mentioned, yes. I was moving through the boroughs, but hadn't lived in Manhattan. Um, my, my only experience of Manhattan was what I saw when I went to the dentist and what I saw on television. And so I Those drew could be two really good reasons not coming back to Manhattan. <laughs> actually. Um, and then I so I drew a city scene and a typical city scene with a street a street scene of buildings and transportation trucks and cars and cabs and people walking and I think I was walking with a young girl little girl walking with her mother and I'm assuming that that was me and there's a bus that's labeled bus and a taxi that's labeled taxi and a bank that's labeled bank and a dry cleaners labeled dry cleaners and a delivery truck uh, that's got a logo the Lay's potato chips logo it says Lay's potato chips but I drew the logo at, at eight years old and I remember I clearly remember just loving Lay's when, barbecue potato chips so it makes sense that then I would do that but that was that's become my life you, you know? subsequently went on to living in Manhattan yeah. taking buses and taxis and going to banks and dry cleaners and drawing logos for a living yeah it's kind of in, incredible. I'm just going to come to this later, but I might as well ask you now, because I've heard you say that Manhattan was your, that was your reason for being here. It wasn't to be an artist. It wasn't to be a designer. The primary motivation, the driver for you was Manhattan. Why? What was, what is it, what were your expectations about the city that made it such a compelling draw to be able to sacrifice going down maybe other routes like doing fine art or heading over to a less expensive city, but you were drawn to it. And I'm intrigued as to understand what's the power of the city? What did it have on you? That's a great question. I don't really have an answer. Mm -hmm. um, my dad, when I did start seeing him again, when I was in my early teens, um, he did live in Manhattan. His girlfriend lived on, Man in Man on Manhattan as well. Um, I admired her a great deal. She was a very important person in my life. She was a, a an independent young woman living in a brownstone in Chelsea. Um, she was very kind to me, one of the few people in my childhood that were really kind. Um, I think she loved me. And I don't know if it was the sense of energy, excitement, culture. I mean, Manhattan was very different in the 70s than it is now, um, but it was magnificent. The graffiti, the art, I, I don't really, I can't really tell you. All I know is that it felt like home. And that was always my, always my number one goal. And that was what I envisioned for my future. And when I graduated college, I went to school in Albany. I immediately moved down to the city and I lived with my mother for two weeks till I found a place to live. And 
have been in Manhattan ever since, mm. 36 years. How did you feel as a, as, a, as a New Yorker when something as traumatic as 9-11 happened? Wow. Well, I was traveling and came home the last flight into LaGuardia Airport on September 10th, mm. 2001. And I was walking to my office, which was in the Empire State Building at that point. And I am not a morning person. And that morning I happened to get up early. I don't know if it was because of jet lag or whatever, but I remember walking to, I, I lived in Chelsea and was walking to the Empire State Building on 33rd and 34th on 5th. And I overheard somebody say that a plane went into the, World Trade Center. Now, my dad had a private, a small plane when I was growing up. He had a, a single-engine, two-seater Cessna. And that's what I imagined. I didn't imagine a jumbo jet. Yeah. I thought, oh my God, somebody's had... And my first thought was to call my father um, because he had a small plane. And um, I called and I'm like, did you just hear that a plane flew into the World Trade Center? And he's like, yeah, I'm turning on the TV. I'm going to watch it. And I, I continued walking to work, and I saw people pouring out of the Empire State Building and very narcissistically thought, oh, my God, I can't believe a day that I'm actually early there's a fire drill because I'm never, I was never early. And then I heard that we were being evacuated. So very quickly, the people from my office all congregated. There's a Starbucks that was across the street, and we all congregated in front of the Starbucks, and no one knew what to do at that point. And we knew we, we, we just assumed at some point we'd be let back into the building. So we all decided, because I lived so close to the Empire State Building, that the entire office would go back to my house, my apartment. I, I then lived on 29th Street. And so everyone came back to my apartment because we had assumed that within an hour or two we'd just be allowed back into the Empire State Building. And then the second, the second plane hit. The second plane hit as we were walking to my house. But, and then but, everybody started to freak out. And then the last conversation I had with my dad before the phones went down was just be safe. Try to get, try to get someplace where you could be safe. Because he lived upstate New York, so he wasn't at that point concerned about himself. And so we all went back to my apartment and we put on the television and we all, you know, people were crying. People were trying to reach their families. A friend of mine, a very, very dear friend of mine lived across the street from the World Trade Center. And she had called me because she and her now husband, they saw people jumping. They had a dog. I'm like, just take, take Bailey and just come to my house. And they did. And they ended up staying for quite some time and living with me until they were able to go back to their their apartment. But we were just, it was just a surreal and traumatic and horrifying experience. I, I can't explain what it was like beyond the terror that we all felt, the smell. You know, we could smell the burning buildings for weeks afterward. People were sleeping all over my house. Some people tried walking home. It was it was just the one of the worst days mm. of, of mine and everybody's life. I'm going to jump back to something you've, I've heard you say, which is you're a perfect Venn diagram of your mother and father. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of Less them, the crazy, I hope. Yeah, yeah, well, one of them must have exerted more influence on your identity and character. No. In a, posi I, in a positive I, way? My relationship with both my parents was mm. super is super complicated. My dad died uh, four years ago. 
He was incredibly charismatic, very well-spoken, very smart. I'd like to think I got some of that from him. Um, But he was also uh, really angry and sometimes violent and sometimes cruel. I don't know why exactly, but he he broke away from a, a very, very religious background mm-hmm. um, at an early age, and I think he had a lot of shame and felt a lot of disappointment from his family because his whole side of the family are still uber, uber Orthodox Jews. I just saw a documentary about what it's like to... Um, oh, did you one of us? Yes, yeah, I did it see it. It's incredible. Yeah. And I can. It, it really gave me a perspective on what it must have been like for my father because that was the, that's where he, he lived in Borough yeah. Park. Okay, right. So, and, and in Muncie where his sister mm-hmm. lives. So that movie was our part of my life in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. He broke away when he was 17 or 18 years old. It gave me an entirely new perspective on the shame that he must have felt while also feeling the need to do this. My mom was not an Orthodox Jew, but she was a Reformed Jew, um, and then I was raised Reform, um, or more conservative. But my my mother, artistic, but I don't know that she's ever spent an adult day on her own without someone there to take care of her. Born again, Jew for Jesus. But do you think, I mean, you're clearly a very resilient and driven and been driven by ambition and self-belief throughout your career. And I've heard you talk no, no, no. I'm going to interrupt you there. Um, I've been driven by ambition, but not self-belief. Uh-huh. If I had self-belief, I probably wouldn't have been as driven because I would have had a better sense of self. Mm-hmm. For most of my life, all of my sense of self was out- outward mm-hmm. coming in, not inward going out. So everything I did was about proving value or worth of being alive. Everything I did was to convince myself that I had meaning or purpose or a benefit or some sort of sense of being worthy. Because when you talk about your 20s being this decade of failure and rejection, of failure and rejection <laughs> there, but the clear that so that resilience that that what you were distor- describing there, you, how you dealt with it, how you carried on and kept pushing through. Presumably, even if there wasn't that sense of inner self-belief, there was a desire to be creative. Always, mm-hmm. always. And, and I've talked about this. Yeah, I think, I, I think my desire to make something of myself was bigger than my shame at being myself. Mm-hmm. So I think that has always propelled me, mm-hmm. that when, I always had more hope than shame. And when you were a child, and, and to go back to that drawing, were you thinking at that time, um, I want to be an artist, I want to be... Um, I think if I really had to pick one thing that I wanted was, I think looking back, I I probably wanted to be in musical theater, um, but never felt like I had the talent to do that. So that wasn't even really a remote possibility. And then when I went to college, I thought maybe I'd work in publishing and then did for, for some time. I worked in magazines and then... But was your creativity and curiosity acknowledged at school? by any of the teachers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a lot of of validation at school Mm -hmm. because I did well in school, and it was easy for me. School was easy. So, yes, I got a lot of validation from my high school teachers. I got a tremendous amount of validation from my college teachers, my college professors, and so much so that I'm setting up a scholarship with SUNY Albany, my alma mater, in the name of one of my professors, Professor uh, Helen Reguero Elam, because her encouragement and belief in me changed my life. She was really the first person who I felt believed in my intelligence, that she thought 
that I had a curious and interesting mind. Now, she might have done that with everybody. I think that was probably her talent. Mm -hmm. But she brought out an excitement for learning and a belief in my ability to learn that no one had done prior. What about your experience outside school in terms of the role of play and, and how that affected your creativity and willingness to embrace ambiguous situations or I'm not sure what you mean I mean I'm never I'm not I'm not a big player <laughs> like I wasn't never I was never a club girl I mean no, I no, went I'm, to a no, few no, and, I mean, you know I mean, you always play. had to do I that mean, as, when... as a child being I, mean, oh, I was oh. I was kicked out when it was weekends and after school my mum would say right off you go into the woods mm. I'd just be left to my own devices oh and I played with Barbies and I made my own little sort of universe with Barbies and Dawn dolls and I made a magazine with one of my high school friends when I before we actually went into high school one. the yeah, debutante yeah, yeah with Debbie Carp I I made my own perfumes when I was a kid I put on shows um, I would be the director and I would have my brother and my two stepsisters um, play parts and we'd put on shows for the holidays and I'd make all of the family sit down and watch. And I love doing that. I thought that was that was some of my happiest memories mm. is doing that kind of stuff. So in a way, going back to the idea of that perfect Venn, the sort of the entrepreneurial side and the sort of the creative side coming together. Yeah, it took me a long time though to, I did inherit a lot of, troubles as well you know it took me a long time to understand what it would mean to to be on my own very similar to my mother I was a serial monogamist and I don't know that I'd spent one day on my own without a, a significant other from the time I was in college until 2017 and then I spent a year and a half without dating anyone intentionally and that was one of the most transformative experiences of my life and it was an amazing one, and I thought it would be terrifying, and it wasn't. Um, it was it was liberating. So that was a very, very big, a really transformative experience in letting go of what I sort of by osmosis learned in a lot of ways. And then I think also coming out at a later age was a very big transformative experience. So it's hard to say which of my parents have had more impact on who I am. I would say that they both have equal amounts. And then I think also I had, I've had a, a phenomenal, transformative, life-changing and life-saving therapeutic experience as well. And that's probably influenced more about who I am and how I live than either of my parents. Okay. Going back to your this positive mentorship and guidance from your teacher um, at school. Uh, sorry, her name was? Uh, Professor Helen Regero-Elam, E-L-A-M. Um, I'm intrigued. Why did you pick English literature and Russian literature and not something that was art-based to go and study at university? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Because <laughs> I, I, at that point, I think I... It, it, I assumed that I'd go into the publishing business of some sort of be journalist. Yeah. Um, I wasn't really a mag I mean, I did take enough art classes to have an art minor, so I can't say that I didn't do that. But I had to declare one minor, and so I just declared Russian literature because that was something I think at the time I had a few more credits with. Well, we like to talk about serendipity, and obviously through your life arc, you've encountered some incredible... Um, experiences and gone in many different directions. Can you maybe just talk a bit about where you could identify where serendipity may have um, affected the path you went on or redirected you? 
Well, certainly the biggest is my experience with Speak Up, the blog, where I discovered that I had been written about and um, written about meanly. And my choice to participate in that discussion and try to sort of intellectually defend myself as opposed to angrily defend myself certainly changed the trajectory of my life um, in that I then started writing for Speak Up and um, had a whole new posse of friends that are still my friends today. Um, I ended up meeting the editor-in-chief of Print Magazine and route to a Speak Up event for the AIGA. That changed my life, Joyce Ryder Kay. Then I, I started working for Print Magazine. That experience introduced me to Stephen Heller. He helped me with my first book deal. He co he invited me to co-found the Masters in Branding program that we're sitting in right now doing this podcast. So I would say that a whole arc of my life wouldn't have been possible without that one serendipitous situation wherein Felix Sockwell decided to take my whole life down on um, the world's first ever design blog and forever change my my life well i suppose look back and thank i do i do as often as i can Um, (laughs) we're friends now too what was your feeling and i've I've heard you talk a bit about this that when you first saw that that immediate feeling i think we've all encountered that that element of being not shamed but oh it was shamed yeah it was shamed but that, that sort of experience it clearly took um well, it feels like it took a bit of courage and bravery to actually embrace it and and go forward and confront it rather than to turn your back on it. What was it inside you that gave you that that drive and, and determination to say, I need to I need to confront this? Well, I thought they were wrong. And I've learned that I'm a person that likes to be right. And so when I first entered the conversation, I did so in a very disingenuous way. I entered the conversation with like, hey, how's that? How's everybody doing? Loving the conversation, which I wasn't. I was terrified and tortured by the conversation. But this was still early days in terms of... Yeah, and I didn't... Yeah, I didn't know. Post goals weren't there. Exactly. No, I was... I was devastated. I was inconsolable. I, you know, here I am running a design consultancy, working, clawing my way up to the top, trying really really hard to make a life of my of my own for myself and and figure out how to live and proud of what I'd accomplished at that point because that was when I had first gotten some success in branding and then this little upstart design blog run by a couple of dudes in their 20s decides to trash my entire practice it nearly killed me um it was something that I didn't think I'd be able to recover from. I had no idea that that one of the wor- the worst professional experience of my life was going to turn out to be the most important, mm-hmm. that that would change the trajectory of my life. At the time, I thought I was doomed. I thought that I'd have to quit my job, that I had shamed my agency, that once people started reading this, they would never want to work at, with Sterling or at Sterling again, and that I should, for the benefit of the business, quit. But I had no other marketable skill. So, and I had a mortgage and, you know, I just... But you had a lot of good friends and supporters. Um, no, I didn't. Nobody came in to support me in that, in that situation. Did you, did you they, I don't even know that they friends? knew. Not really. No, no. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I didn't want anybody to know. It wasn't like I was outraged. 
and and calling everybody and saying, you know, come in and defend me. I didn't do that. Mm. I didn't do that at all. I was so mortified by this. I was. I think I must have tried to hide it because there was no one that I asked to defend me. Dave Weinberg, who then worked at Landor, came in and defended me, but I didn't know him. He came in and defended me at the very, very end. Thank you, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, 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 I wouldn't have even asked. I don't think I could have asked my friends to come in and defend me. I don't know that they could have. I don't know that they there was anything to defend. This was their opinion. They thought that the Burger King logo was disgusting. They thought that the Star Wars work was bad, and, and they wanted me to know it. I tried to persuade them otherwise. Ultimately, I think I did. But I don't know that anybody else would have or should have or could have. And I'm glad they didn't, actually. And what's your relationship with them? Oh, my God. Are you kidding? I'm Armin and Bryony's eldest daughter's <laughs> godmother. I'm, they're my closest friends. They're family now. I mean, Felix isn't family, but he's certainly a friend. Mm-hmm. But Armin and Bryony, Armin Vitt is the founder of Speak Up. Armin and Bryony are dear, dear friends, and I am very close to their children and the godmother of, of their oldest daughter. How do you counsel your students in a world that we're living in where clearly shaming and the, the, the negative power and impact of social media can have on, on, on kids today? Do you draw on that experience to give them guidance? No, not really. No. Not really. Um, I mean, I think most people that know me know that part of my history. Um, I do talk a little bit about resilience with my students, and that's an example that I'll use. But... I don't really talk about rules of social media, mostly because I don't feel like I know them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't feel experienced enough to counsel on that. Yeah. But I suppose from um, from a character perspective, in terms of doing what you feel is right, following your gut. Um, I think they learn by osmosis mm-hmm. how I live my life and how I teach them about branding right. and about consumer behavior. I think they learn about that through me and then probably can take some of those lessons into other areas of their life. Can you talk about the role curiosity's played in some of the actions that you've taken in your life? And obviously, we, you've mentioned the serendipity and where that occurred. But as a, as a, as a curious, sort of playful child, and, and someone that has a desire to be in arts and some form of, of whether it be publishing or design and branding, is it, a, is it a fuel that you're aware of and is something that you've continued to feed or do you just, uh, how do you nurture it? I think that my curiosity is sort of like air. It's just something that I utilize to live. I don't think about it. I'm not conscious of it. It's very involuntary, but it is probably one of the driving factors of my existence. I am innately curious. And I think that's also why I like doing my podcast so much because I'm innately curious about how people live their lives and that gives me a way in to talk about that with other people how do you how do you live and that curiosity fuels my questions and that curiosity fuels everything I've heard you mention about I had a, I had a boss in London that um, in in Grey he used to talk about radiators and drains and I've heard you oh really talking about oh that's this. so funny because <laughs> that's, another two types yeah of the generators and drains I learned that from um, my partner at Sterling who was also British so maybe he, yeah. they all got it from it's the a, same place yeah it's a British thing yeah um, a bit like term uni but one of the things that I've, I've I find a challenge is interviewing for attitude how do you when you're interviewing either a, a student or someone to hire identifying them what what do you look for to ensure that they've they've got that right attitude energy Mm -hmm. it's all about energy energy curiosity passion 
they don't have to be an extrovert, but they do have to exhibit a certain curiosity about the world and a certain openness about what is possible. Mm. I'm, I'm not there to um, pull it out of them. I would like for them to offer that as part of who they are. And are there any particular techniques or questions that you tend to ask to uncover that? Or do you just look to their work and their and what they've they've achieved in there? It's really funny. I'm a terrible I feel like I'm a terrible interviewer for jobs and for students. Um, I think I'm a good interviewer on my podcast, but I rely on my staff here at SVA to help because I tend to be less discerning <laughs> I want I want to find uh, and find something that I like in everyone and I can't we can't accept everyone and I can't hire everyone but I tend to want to so I, I rely on others to help me with um, assessment a proper assessment sometimes I'll just want to hire somebody because I like them so much and that always doesn't always go well Churchill was it was qu- often quoted as saying but I'm not sure it was Churchill that actually did say it um, success isn't final and failure is not fatal. Um, it's the courage to continue that counts. Mm. We touched on a little bit of courage in that particular situation where you confronted um, the blogger. How do you continue to nurture your own courage when you've encountered many situations that individuals of lesser character would have not responded and, and moved on from, but you have? and you've achieved some stellar moments in your career and seem to be on a continuing path. As, as you say in your interview with David uh, David Lee, Lee Roth, Roth yeah. <laughs> it is a never-ending path. Yeah, and, one would hope. <laughs> and there's probably sort of a, an incredible amount more to come. But courage, it's because it's, I know that there's this whole thing around courage and confidence and confidence, but for me, courage is some, something scepter. It's something that's, that burns inside you. It's a, it's a drive. And I know that we've, talk about self-belief and the and maybe the lack off when you were younger but is this something that's grown over time inside you um courage has courage grown inside me is that yeah. what you mean have you become has you, as you have overcome th- these challenges that were being thrown in your way or put in your way and you've you've been resilient and vindicated and experienced success i'd, as, I'd assume that your self-belief is strengthened and it makes you even more courageous. Hmm. I don't think I'm more courageous. I think I just want a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I think it's only courageous to do something before you do it. And then after you do it, you look back and you think, what took so long? You know, coming out is a really big thing for me. I didn't come out until I was 50. I was really worried. I had my own inner homophobia to deal with, my own shame, my feelings that people would reject me or not like me. And now I really understand what pride means. Mm. And that's a very, very big thing to me. My house right now is covered in pride flags. Very happy to say. But, you know, I look back on that experience and I think, oh, yeah, well, you know, it was only seven years ago, so world was is a lot kinder place right now so then I feel shame that I didn't come out sooner because I wasn't brave enough so you know this always still a lot of beating up but do you think it was I mean I know you you spent all this time with Sterling and you came to that pivotal moment where you had to decide whether you became CEO or not right was there at that intersection is that when you felt that it was time for you to come out no I came out before that 
So it was before you I came out before that because I had to I had to talk to my partners and tell them that I was coming out, and you know they didn't know that. You know, some people are like, "What took you so long?" They had no idea. So I came out in 2012, so it was seven years ago, and I left Sterling two years ago. So no, it didn't. And my coming out didn't impact our business at all in what a negative it? way. It was actually fine. It was actually business as usual. What triggered? What triggered moment, what? My the moment, the decision to say, finally, I've got the resolve and the and the and the conviction to say, now's the time to come out or to leave Sterling. To come out. Oh, I fell in love with a woman, <laughs> <laughs> and she wasn't going to live in the closet with me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there hadn't no. But you. So all these years, there there wasn't a sense of your your identity, sexual identity, and what your preferences were up to that point. Well, I think that I had dabbled, as I used to like to say. Um, I suspected that there might be this part of me back in my 20s. But again, I had I felt so much shame about being who I was and so damaged to begin with that any other sense of being other mm. just was unbearable. So I, I, it didn't even it wasn't even a consideration set. But I was reading Ann Bannon novels in my 20s under the covers with a flashlight. So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear. But then, as I said, I, I fell in love with a woman and, and then it was, you know, all systems ago. <laughs> well, congratulations. It's, I think it was great. Fantastic. So just building on that, we've talked about courage. When you talk about your, your, your decade of failure and rejection, what do you think, which failures do you think have been the most defining in your journey and driving you forward? Hmm. I haven't really ranked the failures. I, I couldn't, I, I really don't know. Nothing. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't rank them. Yeah. They all are just there. And the thing about them now is that I don't see them as failures anymore. I just see them as stepping stones. But you can only say that in hindsight. I wouldn't say any of those things were failures because I wouldn't be here right now if they hadn't failed. It's a strange, it is a strange thing. I, I remember I, I was working for an agency in, in London called WCRS and I went to that job working on a Land Rover account. This is gonna be the best job I've ever had. And I last no more than two years and they let me go with a nice little payoff, as you do. But I felt at that point, well, that's my ad career over. It's just, there's, oh, there's, yeah. there's no going forward now. Of course. And how am I gonna deal with telling people? But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Exactly. Because it co- to, co- took me down the digital direction that then opened up all these other opportunities. Exactly. Now, Dan Gilbert would call that synthesized happiness. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with synthesized happiness and I'm fine with organic happiness, as long as you're happy. Um, I can't say that any of the things that happened wouldn't have landed me right now, right here. Same thing even with my childhood. Some of the most important work I'm doing now is working with Mariska Hargitay and the Joyful Heart Foundation to eradicate sexual violence. Who knows if I'd have been doing that if I hadn't experienced it. Do I feel like that is the most important thing I do? Probably. Mm -hmm. So it's all perspective, but it takes, it might take 50 years for that to happen. But yeah, and this allowing you to sort of start to challenge and break that cycle. Right. Going back to your stepfather and father. Yeah. I mean, I think that, do do I wish that it were different? Yes. Do I wish that I didn't have to struggle so hard in order to understand love? Absolutely. Would I have liked to have had less violence in my life? Yeah. But at this point, it's made me who I am. I, I do think that had I been better parented, I might have been a happier person, but I'm very happy now, and that's 
what matters most to me. I read a book last year by Robert Lussig called Hacking the American Mind. Mm. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I've heard about it. It's really good because he breaks down the sort of the neurological um, way that the brain works in relation to dopamine and serotonin Mm. um, and oxytocin. And how cr- the importance of obviously connection and creativity plays on the release of, of serotonin and therefore happiness. And it's funny, I, w- I was talking to, a, I was interviewing a guy called Fabrice Grinda, who's number one angel investor in the world. Oh, wow. And he's he's got a technique that he, and he talks about he- hedonic. Um, the hedonic treadmill? Treadmill. And he said, I'm just an inherently happy person, but when I'm creating, I'm even happier. Yeah, I'm happiest when I'm making things. That's how I define my, my sense of happiness. Yeah, so... I think there's something really interesting in in terms of you've you've had this struggle. You've talked openly about your struggle with de- depression. Has it occurred at times when you've been in a, a less creatively prolific, or is it just been have been other factors that have contributed? Um, the depressions that I felt. I had a depression in 2003 and a depression in 2015. The depression in 2015 was sparked by a, a confluence of some really difficult situations. My father unexpectedly died. Uh, I was dumped. And I was changing my job situation at Sterling. And I moved for the first time in over two decades. So those those four (laughs) things contributed to my like kind of falling apart for Mm -hmm. a couple of months. And then the the uh, situation in 2003 was also relationship and a lot of external circumstances that beat me down. And, and gave me a, a sense of despair. But I've recovered mm. from both. So the reason I also bring up Fabrice, it is a fascinating character, and if you get a chance to go on his site and read some of his essays, he writes letters to himself. So going back to um, your exercise with Milton and then what you do with your students, there's something I find fascinating in that because I used to write down my goals and affirmations mm-hmm. and follow them all. One of them I had when I back in the day in, living in, in Scotland was to live in San Francisco and I put a posted picture in my little diary of Union and Hyde and a building and I ended up living there oh, 10 wow. years later. I love that. Which is, which is incredible. It's like Eluna's dream about her white, room and then finding it and painting in it. It's incredible. So talk to me more about clearly Fabrice and the way he does it. He writes letters to himself 20,000, 30,000 words. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's off the That's a book. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And he does this every two, three years. That's incredible. No wonder he's the biggest angel investor in the world. Um, But then he has his mentors and his his advisors who he then takes counsel from and then he almost goes down like a test-driven development approach where he throws things on the wall and goes down different routes and then finds and refines and yeah i i don't do that so <laughs> so given you did this with with milton and i've heard you say that pretty much 98 percent of it yeah, is there already yeah. i did another one well that's the, what i'm gonna say so what's I, your what's your future focus well i'm on not now? gonna i'm not gonna reveal oh, everything on, no, no not a chance <laughs> um i'm not gonna reveal what i wrote but i will tell you that it was big and bold Mm-hmm. And a few of them are, are happening. And it's incredible. It's incredible because they're big, fat dreams that you don't ever imagine happening. And then all of a sudden, boom. President Millman. <laughs> <laughs> no, if I was going to no. do anything, I would run for mayor of New York, but yeah. I'm not going to. <laughs> but I fantasized uh, it about it. Yeah. It could be, but I fantasized about yeah. it, but I'm not going to do the it. The running could be really good fun. You could sort of imagine all the, sort of the comments in the comment section. Right? The branding, yeah. too. I know. Yeah. Oh, we could do with a bit of that. <laughs> a good good, good logo, good candidate logo. Yeah. 
Um, and then you might need some help with the social media from your students. Yeah, that's true. Okay. What principles do you stand by? Loyalty. Generosity. Kindness. Uh, second all of those. What hard choices have you had to make that were tough at the time but did turn out to be the right decision? Leaving Sterling. Coming out. Leaving a relationship. Okay. Starting a new one. <laughs> Where do you go to discover new ideas? The internet. Really? Yeah. Ah. And museums. Ah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. A nice combination. What about when you need space to think? I look out my bedroom windows. I spend a lot of time daydreaming. Any particular time of day? Morning. Oh, always. Every morning. <laughs> Is that your meditation practice? Mm, it's not a meditation practice. It's just a habit. Mm. I'm not meditating. I'm just staring. Mm. And ideas come to you? Yes. And I walk a lot. I walk a lot. And ideas come to me when I'm walking. What are your favorite walking paths? Uh, just anywhere downtown. I love walking. I walked back and forth to work. I walk back and forth to most meetings. Um, I love walking. What's your perspective on failure? I hate it. I loathe it. I cry. But you've beaten it. For the just just in the past, there's still more to come. Oh, I know, just, but we, that's just the reality of life. It's just one. We, I don't know that I've beaten it. I think I've overcome <clears throat> the okay, feelings. That's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> um, who have you met that's most surprised you? Roxanne Gay. That was a quick answer. Well, she's my partner now, right? And she surprised me in every way. Well, you, we might have the same answer to the next question. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My therapist. Yeah. How do you keep up with technology? I don't. Other people help me. Oh, you're surrounded me. by your students. Exactly. Yeah. Other people help me. The impossible question. What would you, your advice be to someone um, maybe 20, 30 years your junior that is being told their dream, their grand ambition is not possible? If you want it more than anything, make it your non-negotiable and dedicate everything that you have to making it happen. That's lovely. Your non-negotiable, remember, being New York City. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have a non-negotiable now? Is it still New York? No, I wouldn't say it's New York. An open heart. We've never had that answer. Final two questions. Um, we'd like to offer um, listeners a book that when they come up with the best comments in the comment section, which book should we recommend other than the many of the books that you've written? Um, Hunger by Roxane Gay. Okay. Who should we interview next? Emily Oberman from Pentagram. Okay, that sounds great. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for uh, a really, really good interview. I, would like I really want to say, well done. You're a very, very good interviewer. Well, thank you very much. Can I just acknowledge you for your, again, your candor and your openness to vulnerability? Um, it's, I think it's a lesson uh, we can all follow in the footsteps from what you've done by being so open. So many of us are closed and we live in denial of the lives we've led before. And I think you're, the path you've taken and the way that you've told your story with such compelling, in such a compelling and emotive manner is inspiration for people and I hope you continue to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Debbie. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, visit theimpossiblenetwork.com or follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. 
This show is a Fabrica Collective production and is produced by Bettina McKelly and Elaine Castillo-Keller. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.